NotFest.com presents Talk To Me. With over 300 interviews under his belt and six years running, your host Joshua Toomey interviews metal and rock's heaviest hitters. Follow the show at Talk To Me Talk. Here's your host, Joshua Toomey. What is up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of Talk To Me here on NotFest.com. The guest this week is the one, the only, Fred Corey former drummer of Cinderella Arcade and so many other bands. Chris, how are you doing? Awesome, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. I know you're a, you know, you're a big fan of Cinderella. You're, a, you know, the, you're the classic metal show guy. You That's know? right. And uh, so I'll have you on the interview with me later on, man. Are you excited to talk to Fred Corey? I am, I am ex- astoundingly happy. <laughs> I I can't believe you do all the good all the fun interviews of the modern stuff. You're like, okay, I'm doing something old. Okay, Chris, you're welcome to be in that one. Old guy gets to interview old guy. Fantastic. Well, no, I, was, I I I asked Fred the other day, and Fred said, for you, yes. Anyone else, no. So, so nice. we're getting an exclusive here on the Talk to Me podcast. Very nice. The uh, the Fred Corey man. Yeah, I think Fred only does interviews for us and like Eddie Trunk. So okay. So we're in good company or bad company, depending on if you like Eddie or not, I guess. Yeah, right. No, but uh, but Fred's had a crazy career, man. He's He did Cinderella, obviously, then he did Arcade, and then a bunch of producing. And, I mean, he played drums on, like, the big Miley Cyrus, Hannah Montana hits and things right. like that. And, you know, and now he's doing uh, TV scores and things for the L.A. Kings. And, man, he's just had a crazy, crazy career, man. But you know what though, dude? That's he's honestly probably more right than most of these guys that had success in the in the eighties, because most of those guys are still stuck having to tour around and play in the bullshit state fair or whatever. You know, <laughs> where where Fred has actually gone on to a legitimate career that I'm sure more than pays his bills and takes care of him, man. Good for him. Yeah, man. Every time he posts something on Facebook, man, it's always him doing something awesome. I mean, he posted a photo the other day of just him and Geezer Butler hanging out. Like, like nice. You know, right. what a life. What a life. Sure. I've always been interested with him. I've never asked him. I've interviewed him a couple of times before, but I've never asked him. I'm going to ask him today if he enjoyed just the the experience and not and not the chicks and the live shows and stuff, but like. You know, he was, for people that haven't followed along Cinderella's career, he was kind of left out of a lot of stuff. And, you know, they would always bring in another drummer to do this or that to where he, he, it almost, I wonder anyway, if he really enjoyed that aspect of the business at all. And and then when he went to Piercy and with Arcade, if he, you know, he was obviously more involved in that, but did he even enjoy that? Or was that just kind of the nuisance that he had to put up with to get back to the road. It is weird, man. His, his career is interesting. You know, I I'll still never understand the whole, why he didn't play on the Cinderella records. He's a damn good drummer. I don't get it, but yeah. And I've talked about this many, many times on the show. I mean, he obviously produced some of my early demos for my band out of right out of high school. And I sat and watched him play drums one time, just in the studio, him by himself. I've never heard a drum kit sound that thunderous. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was, it blew me away too, that, that they, that they had this kid that was on, you know, all the shrapnel records, all the stuff back then with Mike Varney playing drums for all those guitar dudes. And then he gets into Cinderella and they're like, Oh, we're going to bring in like what Terry Bazio and those guys. Yeah. yeah. It never made a lot of sense to me that they didn't, 
that that they didn't keep him to play. And to be honest, they they kept Labar to play, who was less of a guitar player than he was a drummer. Right. You know, and, and again, not shitting on Jeff Labar, but I, I mean he wasn't as good of a guitar player as Fred was a drummer, but for whatever reason, I I've never understood that whole thing. And I know he's not going to come on here and shit on Tom Kiefer or whoever. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not even going to bother asking. Cause I know I'll get the, well, you know, that was a different time and there was management. I know the answer already, <laughs> so I won't be asking it, but, but you know, I've, I've just never understood it, I guess. Cause he right. is a, I saw him a few, I saw him many times with Cinderella and I saw him twice with arcade and he kicked ass. I mean, he was a great drummer. So yeah. I don't, I don't get it. The one time, did I see them once or twice? I saw, I saw Cinderella post like the reunion in like what okay. ninety seven, ninety six, whatever, whatever year that was. And um, we, my, my first band that he produced, we booked like a quick two week tour, and we were actually in. Like, I think we might have actually been in Akron when he, we got the call from Fred to come open for them in St. Louis. Okay. And uh, so we opened a Cinderella show at, at Pops, which holds about, you know, probably like 2,200, I think, packed out. Okay. And that is still one of the craziest crowds I've ever played in front of. There was The, the place was packed, people in the rafters, just, just people going crazy for Cinderella, man. One of the craziest shows I've seen. They were always good, man. Yeah. That, that was always the... I mean, that was the one thing to me, you know, and I'm not going to break any new ground here, but they did not belong in the hair metal genre. Right. I mean, yeah, they looked the part when night songs came out, they absolutely looked the part, but they weren't Britney Fox. So, <laughs> you know, they, you know, they musically, they didn't yeah. fit the part. They certainly looked it, but mu musically, they were always so much better. They were always kind of that next level better. Mm -hmm. And then when they did heartbreak station, they actually proved it. And, everybody shit on it because it didn't have a bunch of lyrics that rhymed and, you know, and, and a bunch of girls in the videos. It was right. just kind of a stripped down raw, cool feel. So, Oh yeah. I don't know. I love them. I'm a big fan. Yeah. And, uh, like, like we've talked a little bit lately that the, uh, the new car has Sirius XM in it. And we, uh, uh, I'll click on the, the hair nation channel, dude. And I swear to God, Cinderella is on that station 122 times a day like it is <laughs> it's it's they're they're seriously in the rotation like hardcore it's crazy how much cinderella i've listened to lately well you were you were a bit young when they were hitting man when they were hitting mm -hmm. they were everywhere yeah i don't know what you, what you got till it's gone it really all those songs off a of long cold winter yeah i mean they buried us in those songs those <laughs> between those tunes and motley crew and you know that that era of music it was every other song, man. And then throw in some Michael Jackson just to throw it up, to, to throw <laughs> it up, to change it up a little yeah, bit. Yeah. You know, it was, um, it was the experience of MTV at that point. And Cinderella certainly capitalized on, on the MTV era and made the oh, most yeah. of their, their stake. And they did, uh, I think by the, honestly, by the time I really got into stuff, that's the, we talk about the Beavis and Butthead era and get back and fall and stuff. So I mean, Beavis and Butthead like tore them another one. Of course. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's one of the more hilarious videos they've ever watched. And, and partly too, because th those guys of, of all bands, it's, it's, it's always really strange to go back into kind of my, my musical history, but of all bands, like Cinderella was a huge band for me when I was, 18 19 20 mm -hmm. because they were around like you know jeff came to our practices and you know sure. he, 
he he heard one part in a riff. He heard a riff in a song and he said, you guys need to take that riff and make it its own song. And we did, you know, we, we created an entirely new song off of a, an idea from Jeff Labar. And then, right. you know, Eric Brittingham is around and he's giving me bass strings and, you know, telling me about technique <laughs> wow. and, you know, how, because, you know, we're starting to tune lower and he's like, you need to get this string and that, you know, do this and that and the other thing. So, I mean, those guys were around. I mean, Tom, I saw Tom out some. I never really had any, you know, long talks with Tom Kiefer, but sure. Eric Brittingham, Jeff Labar, Fred Corey, insanely, uh, you know, huge kind of in my early development. Yeah, I'm curious for you. How did you end up accepting what they had to say? Because you were in, but you know, by that point, you were in much more modern music than they yeah. did. And you know as well as I do, most most guys when they're doing something different, they don't want to hear from the old guard. Right. They don't want they'll they'll be thrilled to say, yeah, yeah, I met Fred Corey, but at the same time, Fred Corey's giving you tips or something, or Jeff Labar's giving you tips. You're like, okay, old man, worry about your hair stuff. Go put some Aquanet on and get out of my face. Yeah. You know, what was it that about those guys that made you actually listen to what they were doing and think that it could help you when you were doing something so different than what they did? Well, well I think with those guys in particular, by the time they really started giving us advice, Fred had already started producing us. And like the, the demos that we had back then sounded so good. Okay. And, you know, by that time, you know, we had, you know, they had done it. They had done the arena tours with, you know, Bon Jovi and, yeah. you know, and, and then even, you know, Fred was fresh off of arcade who was doing like David Lee Roth stadium tours mm -hmm. or uh, arena tours and things like that. So, I mean, we, there were a few things that kind of came through. I mean, honestly, Fred didn't let me play on some of the early 12 volt stuff because I, I know I was 18 years old. I've been playing bass for a few years and looking back. I mean, I was mad then looking back now I get it, but I yeah, always, yeah. I always assumed Fred was taking some of that 80 stuff and, and bringing it to us, like not letting the, the guys play on the album and things like that. Which, you know, in hindsight, probably a little bit of that. But in hindsight, the demo sounded so good that I, I really couldn't say <laughs> anything about it, man. But um, but by the time we did an actual, we did an EP with them that we put out. And mm -hmm. by that time, I was like, <laughs> which is crazy to think now. But I mean, I, I remember Fred wanting to work with us because we had, we had started doing demos with him. We signed like a production deal with him. We were going to do all this stuff. And then Cinderella got back together. So okay. he goes off to do the Cinderella, you know, one of the rocker bus tours and all those things mm -hmm. you probably went to back in the day. And then, so while he's doing that, we started, you know, we found another producer, did a, did a full length debut CD touring, things like that. And just getting out there. And then Fred heard the, you know, the album and he's like, well, you guys have, you know, brought a, you know, another level or whatever. And he wanted to do another uh, recording for us. And I remember I was like, I'll do it, but I'm playing on it. Like right. put, put down kind of thing, like <laughs> you know, and I did, and it sounded awesome. I mean, the bass tone on that record is awesome. Nice. Um, and so I, but you know, so it was, it's kind of like some tough love, or you know, you need to try harder, or you need to practice more, that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. and and it was even when we went back to record, I was like, I'm going to show him kind of thing. And so, right. you know, I busted my ass, and you know, we we had a really awesome. Uh, you know, which is crazy because it was Fred Corey and then it was this guy named Voitech who he ended up, he was like the guy that engineered like no more tears. Like, oh, wow. Nice. You know? so it was like, it was like this crazy production team of just for, for, for my, you know, my early band. 
Right on, man. It just it's it, it that's just such a weird story to me. That's it's almost like he took out his own frustration on you. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, his his Cinderella frustration became the 12 volt frustration for the bass player, you know. Almost. Right. And but it's more weird to me that what 12 volt was your band, right? Like you started it. Right? Uh, I, I joined a band that was already established and then we changed our name a few months later and then f- through the time, I mean, I guess I kind of took more, uh, ownership of the business side of everything. Okay. You know, so, writing and business and things. So then, all right. So who played the bass on the 12 volt record? Now, now you got me thinking about this. Well, huh? no, I mean, there was the guitar player, the, our, our guitar player, Cody, Cody McCall is still one of the most wasted talents out there. Okay. Of any any musician I know, and I, I don't say wasted as in like you know he he wastes his life doing whatever. He's just so good that he could 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 have been in any band. Sure, he's one of those dudes that he hears a riff, he can immediately play it. Oh wow! Or, you know he can he, he's just a, he's a machine when it comes to the guitar, and so yeah he he played he played the you know he played bass on that uh, on that album. So you didn't have any kind of negative toward oh why'd they bring this fucking guy in here. Well, no, because he was already our guitar player. Like he was our guitar, you know. Yeah, but still, it's still you're you're sitting on the sideline. That's what I'm saying is is when you listen to it, were you annoyed? I guess because even if it, even if he could play the parts, yeah. it wasn't you playing the parts, and right. you're in the band. Yeah, I mean, I guess at the time, I mean, I remember people saying things about it, and you're like, you wanted to be like. Well, that's really not me playing, but, <laughs> but right. I mean, I will say and, and man, this is, this is such little stuff now, right. but I mean, back then, I mean, he, he at least played my bass parts that I wrote, okay. you know what I'm right. saying? And like, he didn't try to like do a whole lot of new stuff. <laughs> you know, he, he really sat down and he, he learned what I was doing. And, and, but I mean, he, like I said, dude, he was just a monster player and he still is. He's actually got a really great band called Rift R I F F T now. Okay. Um, and kind of kind of like a crowbarish kind of sludge nice. doom metal band kind of thing that uh but yeah he's just one of those dudes that his dad's Daryl McCall was like in you know uh played through all the country dudes crap like that and right and he's a huge country like when you know what like, probably like a tier B country artist you know kind okay. of kind of thing growing up and so I mean that that was Nashville though that was every other dude Every other kid's dad was a country musician. Right. You know? He played bass for Waylon Jennings or something, you know? Right on. <laughs> Very good. But yeah, I mean, so, so yeah, we went through all that stuff with, with Fred and, and just kind of, you know, there, there were so many learning moments with Fred, just even down to silly stuff. Like we were in the studio one day and we were playing back our, you know, when you're in the studio, you play your, you know, you play what you're working on and then you play, something that you want to kind of uh, recreate or you right. want to, you want, you know, a, B it, you know, they call it a, mm-hmm. B, you know, you play your stuff and then you play it against something that you like. And I remember we had river runs red in the studio and okay. we a B river runs red and our, you know, the demo, I was like, Oh my God, you know? <laughs> and I remember I was like, man, we're going to have the best sounding demo in Nashville. And Fred goes, no, you're going to have the best sounding demo in the world. You know, he kind of, he kind of like made me think a little bit bigger, man. But I right. mean, I, like I said, man, I was, 18 i think when i first sure probably i probably met him around 17 and really like you know sat down in the studio around no it would have been 17 because i remember when we signed that production deal i had to get my dad to sign for me 
Okay. Wow. <laughs> you know, because I was, I was still 17. Yeah. So I'll give you this. You were much more mature than I would have been. Cause if it would have been me at 17, I'd have been like, fuck you. I'm playing my own <laughs> bass parts. And if you don't like it, fuck you. I'll get another producer. I don't care what you did. You know, I know that would have been me. <laughs> yeah. But the, the studio that we were in was like crazy, fancy, you know, massive studio. I mean, it, it was, it was way too big for what we were doing at the time, but, okay. but like I said, man, I mean that the band that I joined with the, the band that 12 volt was before I joined, I remember just like, they were all a couple years older than me. So, I mean, I almost didn't even get in the band because I was so young because right. they wanted to play, you know, clubs that you know, 18 and over clubs. And sure. you know, I wouldn't have been allowed in those type places, but I I'm persistent <laughs> <laughs> and um, I haven't lost that side of me, but yeah, the, um the, the the guys were older but i i remember um we were recording with a friend of mine another friend whose dad is you know musician had like an eight track studio at his house and we were doing these demos at the house and um and they the you know my friend jason knew the guys that were in 12 volt which at the time was called adrenaline hammer and he had adrenaline hammer over to record some demos they sounded a real life of agony back then like super okay. life of agony but uh, um, which was perfect because that was one of my favorite bands. Sure. But I remember them walking in, like, yeah, they're coming over to record today. And they, I remember they just walked in. I mean, they were all like probably nineteen. But I was like, these are the coolest guys I've ever seen in my life, you know. <laughs> nice. And uh, and I, and we got, you know, we we had one of those southern snow days where, uh, you know, you get out of school for just a little light dusting of snow. Right, and I was over in his house playing video games all day, and we just we played that demo over and over and over, and I was like, man, I, I did these guys are like, you know, I want to be in that band. Sure. And then, uh, and then they started. Uh, I started going to their rehearsals, and the bass player they had one day just didn't show up, and they're like starting to talk about like we need to do auditions and blah blah blah, and I'm like, I'm a bass player, you know, <laughs> raise my hand in the corner. And uh, you know, basically got some some somewhat of an audition, and next thing you know, I'm in the band. There you go, and the rest is history. And then you started the world's greatest podcast. <laughs> well, that was that was a long time after that. <laughs> I'm just shortening up the story for yeah. for for time. <laughs> for time, yes, yes. Joined uh, joined Adrenaline Hammer at 17 and started talk to me at 35. So. Yeah, uh, just mere couple of days in between. A <laughs> couple of days, a few gigs. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Got to. We open. You know what's funny is we open for Earth Crisis. How nice. how did how did this work? We opened for Cinderella in St. Louis, and then we opened for Earth Crisis a couple of days later. So wow. like within like two days, <laughs> and that was the '90s kids. Yeah, I was gonna say those are like bands, like <laughs> not even remotely close, <laughs> right? And did you play different sets? Um, no, we, I mean, we didn't really have that many songs at the time. So I mean, it probably would, it would have been a very similar, um, similar sets. Okay. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I, I used to love that in the nineties when you could just see all kinds of whack shows yeah. that, you know, me, Mr. Musicality that loves yeah. everything. I used to love that when I'd go see like some thrash band opening for Motley Crue or I saw Anthrax with Poison once. Oh, out nice. in out in Oakland at some festival, <laughs> and it was Anthrax and Poison were both like the co-headliners or something. Well, crazy shit. I've got like boxes and boxes of like old flyers and stuff, and you'll see the old flyers, you know, the the magazine clippings and stuff like that. And you'll look over and you'll see like a, um, you know, we used to play with 
you know, we used to play with like the punk ska bands and, and sure. you know, some rappers every once in a while, you know, like, I mean, there was, uh, you know, uh, the fair Verona who is now war on women, you know, like those okay. guys were around all the time. Like, like it was always just a mishmash of, of, of styles, you know, because, right. you know, now it's like 13 metal bands all in one day. And back then it was like, it might've been 13 bands, but you were going to get a, a stoner rock mm-hmm. band and a jam band and, yeah. you know a couple of rappers every once in a while you know it, it was it was all over the place yeah back then you'd have at least one band where you could take a rest you know <laughs> where you could take a little bit of a break now it's just like 13 hours of moshing not stop right. <laughs> well let's see if we could sneak in this uh this unboxing before fred jumps on in about five right. minutes so okay uh you guys know that i we talked a few weeks ago about uh the vinnie paul auction and there That's was right. one item that i was eyeballing on this auction and um i definitely you know, if anyone was going to own it, it had to be me. That's right. Um, the auction ended actually Sunday, the Sunday I was in New York at my uh, wife's family. So I was like sitting around and then I kind of had to be a, 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 you know, unsocial butterfly and go away and, and, uh, and bid on this stuff, man. But, uh, but I ended up winning and, you. uh, this came in a few days ago and I've been sitting on it. So let me, uh, let me grab the box and the knife. What did I do with uh-huh. the knife? <laughs> <laughs> I seriously just had it. I was like, "Fit!" Oh, that's what dropped. Hang on. All right, got the knife. All right, and the box. Look at that! Look at that big old box. Oh God! Broken. Lose the entire, lose the entire production. <laughs> yeah, that would be your luck, wouldn't it? Just the cameras go out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, the uh, Vinnie Paul auction. He had some sport memorabilia in here. No brown stuff, though. No browns. I don't know why. I don't. What a false drummer that guy was. <laughs> you know, today, uh, as we record the uh, anniversary of his passing. Uh, Vinnie's passing? Yep. How many years has it been now? Like five, four? Four. F- what, was that 18 or 17? I think it was 18. Yeah, 18. So, yeah, four years. Wow. Okay, we got <sighs> the box open. Oh. Well, backstage auctions incorporated. All right, so got here. It's probably your certificate of authenticity. Oh, this looks real professional. Rip. <laughs> oh, well, thank you card. All right, all right. I didn't even have enough time to write the whole word. Ah, you don't need it. You knew what they meant. <laughs> uh, on behalf of the entire backstage auctions crew, we would like to thank you for participating in the Vinnie Paul auction. We hope that you enjoyed your experience with us. Every auction in the backstage host is unique in its own way. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Thank blah, you for blah. your, thank you for your money. Yeah. Thanks for paying on time. Actually, I did get that. I got a, thanks for paying so quickly. <laughs> All right. Hereby guarantee that the above named item lot was part of the Vinnie Paul Abbott estate collection uh, signed by Bry Dog. So that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's a, Legit. There you Signature go. Sure, there, Bry Dog. Appreciate that. And now the good shit. <laughs> Look at that. Dun, 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 dun. This thing is heavy as hell. <laughs> so yeah, so Vinnie Paul randomly had a Tennessee Titans helmet in his collection. Right. And me being me, you had to have it. I had to have the <laughs> Vinnie Paul. 
<laughs> now, what was his collect his connection to Tennessee? I don't think there was a connection to Tennessee. I think this. Um, I would assume. I know he was, you know, obviously a big giant sports fan. So I would right. assume. He's an Oiler fan, maybe. No, I mean, I, well, I mean, he had other helmets in the collection. So I mean, I'm just assuming that this was a, uh, you know, maybe something for his bar or something. Okay. This feels super authentic. It probably is. Like, dude, for all you know, Kevin Dyson or somebody gave it to him. It's got a little little scuff on there. Probably game worn, you know. Game worn, yeah. Uh, well, probably not since it still was the uh, unless it was like a mini pearl player. Oh, nice. <laughs> Do not remove this card until helmet is issued to player. Oh, look and at that. has read the and understand that. So yeah, this is a. Wow. So, yeah. so, so Vinny probably met up with like the equipment manager or something that was a yeah. big Pantera fan and slid him a helmet on the slide. Cause this has the, um, if you look at the top here, it's got that where you like put the thing in there and like pump it up, pump it up a little bit, you know, yeah, look at that. That's yeah, old this, school. This feels super cool. Cause I look have this one. See, I've got, I've got the, yeah, this is way lighter. Um, I got the autographed one. Comes with no pads in it. Does it have padding in it? It's got padding, but it's got it's it's not definitely not like this. Yeah, yeah. this is the it ain't, that other one wouldn't protect your head. This one would. No, no, no. Yeah, this one's definitely uh, definitely nice, man. You might have to wear that around driving driving your car. Just protect yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Do not use this helmet to butt, ram, or spear an opposing player. Oh, <laughs> so. you've been warned. <laughs> so, yeah, so Vinnie Paul helmet uh, from the Vinnie Paul Estate Auction. Yeah, man, this is this is pretty awesome. Now, where does this end up sitting in your house? Uh, I'm gonna get uh, um, you know, one of those cool like helmet cases. Okay. Yeah. And eventually, once I kick all the kids out, I'm gonna turn the uh, game room into my football room. Nice. My man cave, bro. Oh, you're in your man cave, aren't you? We'll see it hanging on the wall next week. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm in my man cave corner of the house, but yeah, man, right. awesome. Uh, Vinnie Paul auction. Look at that. Right, dog. That is very cool, man. That is awesome. Yeah, you, I mean, that seemed, that seemed very... I mean, like I said, man, I wish I knew more of a backstory in it now because it definitely feels feels sure. super authentic. And what'd that cost you? Uh, I won... With, with taxes, fees, and shipping and everything else, it was like 430 dollars All right, that ain't too bad. Yeah. I mean, just a, just a regular old helmet that, that's actually ready for pro helmets. Probably, what, 200 I think they run about three hundred. I think I think the asking price was about the start. You know how much you can just go buy one for. Right. Okay. So yeah. So you paid a hundred bucks more for something that Vinnie Paul stuck under his arm and carried back to his place. You know, he probably bounced that off of something, had some shots out of it or something. You know. Yeah, probably did. Probably had a <laughs> bottle of Crown Royal sitting in it and in it at a party or something. Right. Right. Oh, that that's cool, man. That's pretty damn awesome. But yeah, I mean, if anybody needed to own a Vinnie Paul Tennessee Titans helmet, it had to be me. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was watching some of the uh, the items on that on the auction, man. Some of it just like the records and the drum kits and things like that, man. It started going for insane amounts of money. Oh, yeah, yeah so. but yours didn't. Yours, yours, I mean, what, 400 bucks? That's really not that bad. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't, you know, there were no other bidders. <laughs> yeah, nice. Well, that's I got okay. it for opening bid, opening bid. So nice. I should have known. I'd have gone in there and fucked you up. <laughs> well, that's what I was worried about. If I if I said it too much on the show, like you know, maybe somebody <laughs> somebody like Chris Aiken would jump in there and be like, 
trying to I'd trying swoop to... in, buy it, and then offer it to you. <laughs> <laughs> 600, bro. 600. 600. <laughs> <laughs> the only fred Corey to the talk to me podcast here at notfest.com fred how are we doing tonight doing really well thank you very much now fred you got the uh the the, the motley crew tour out there with tommy clufetos playing drums yes. on there you know why are you not out there i mean you, you got your friends and all that did you get a I, call i spoke to nikki about it but he was like you couldn't do it because you have you have two tv shows you're working on so <laughs> i i can't even ask you to do that so um, it's a drag because you know Motley is one of my favorite bands, right? And if anybody can play the Tommy stuff, if it weren't for Tommy, I'd, I'd have no style at all. <laughs> so, uh, so it would have been great, but but uh, the other Tommy is doing a great job. Right on. Was was Tommy Lee like a big uh, kind of influence on you back then? I mean, I know he's oh, a, yeah. peer, a peer, but you know, yeah. I mean, he's a great drummer. He came to my house once when I was in New Jersey. And that's the first time I saw him play anything other than Molly stuff, other than the rock stuff. Yeah. And he was putting down these funk grooves that were insane. Um, and I realized, oh, he's so much more than a rock drummer. I mean, he's always been a great rock drummer. Uh, but if you watch, as soon as I went from a double bass kit down to a single, we would have competitions on who would have a bigger bass drum. So if you look at my kit, it's really Tommy's kit. It's the same, same side. I really copied. In fact, I had an instructional video that really didn't teach anything. But there was a thing where I, I hit Brian Tishy loves loves this trick, and I hit it off of the snare drum. But I don't throw it up. A lot of drummers throw it up. That's anybody. Right. Throw it up. Uh, so I would hit it off of the rim, and it go up into the lighting rig. I mean, it's just really high. So it would show a bunch of different clips of me doing it in different concerts. And the last one comes down and Tommy catches it because nice. the whole time I'm talking about that, I invented this thing and then he catches it. And then I said, well, actually Tommy invented it and I stole it, which <laughs> Brian Tishy doesn't give Tommy any credit. He gives me the credit. So I'll take it. Right on. <laughs> well, Fred, what do you think when you see these, you know, the bands from, from that era, from your era, from that time, still doing such massive show, bigger shows than you guys actually did do at that time. You know, I mean, yeah. these stadium things, it's, it's, it's truly amazing that after all these years, you put, you put three or four bands together and it's a stadium package, you know, so many years later. It's incredible. I mean, it's, it's the music and that's the thing that doesn't lie. It's not, look, I like a, tons of different music. I like, I listen to I always have, I was the guy on the bus that when, 
we'd get done with the show and have some people on the bus certain people would want to play rock and i'm just like no let's play some dance music let's play hip-hop let's play something that other people want to hear um so i've always been into it but it doesn't hold the test of time it doesn't stand the test right. of, you know there are songs that you won't ever see them you might see them in a stadium now just because it seems that you could get a deal they have one song dua lipa what a song amazing She's selling out arenas. Right. Got a song. One song. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. um, so that to me is, is, I think we provided more, and th- these rock bands provided more of a party, more of an atmosphere, more of a time. And the people who are spending money to go to these shows, it's not about the songs themselves. It's about what they were doing. If I say, you know, kickstart my heart, you're going to remember the song, but you're going to remember what was happening the first time you did it. So what, right. whatever it was, if you were, whatever it was and how that affected and impacted your life. So I think that's the beauty of it. And it seems as though the bands that are playing these things are ACDC with the exception of a few country artists, it's ACDC and Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue and Def Leppard and, you know, Poison, I had no idea, sold almost 60 million records. <laughs> I was like, unbelievable. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and these new bands aren't selling that. They're doing a, a million, a billion downloads. Right. But I think we're probably close to that at some point with all, you know, we've been around for 72 years. <laughs> right. I hope we're close to that. Right. Do you think that part of the reason that the 80s music is still as popular as it is now is because a lot of it was perceived as the, as the image where people like people knew the songs, but they certainly could look, you know, they'd see you guys with the Aquanet with the hair, a million miles high, whatever. And they knew the image, maybe even more than they knew the music, but they heard the songs. So now they kind of see it as they are. Now we've all, you know, stripped away Mm. our, our patch jackets and everything else to where now it's just about the music, which almost gives a lot of it, especially kind of like deeper album tracks, a lot more life than, than other bands might have that started out looking kind of normal and stayed that way. I agree with that. I mean, there's, I, we've had it. I was just telling somebody about this probably yesterday. So many people have come up and said, it with, with my wife included, gosh, I, I know this song. I didn't know it was you guys. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and that happens so much, especially with my band. It's uh, people, people do know the songs. And then once they start diving into it, they get into this whole next level of, of music. Somebody said to me, they were talking about Motley yesterday. Oh, it was my agent talking about Motley. And we were talking about Theater of Pain. I was like, I can't tell you one song on that. So I had to look back and look at that record and said, oh, okay, Home Sweet Home. But I forgot all of the other songs <laughs> right. that were on there that were really cool. I had no idea. I had completely, they were out of the bank, you know, out of the memory bank completely. Mm-hmm. And I had to draw them back in and go, oh, this is really cool. And sometimes I'll go back and listen. I listened to Michael Schenker, um Assault Attack last week or a couple of weeks ago. I oh, hadn't heard yeah. it in years, and it's great. I think that drummer plays for Billy Joel now. Um, what a great record. It was an unbelievable record. 
didn't sound as good as I remember it sounding, right. but it was really good. And that's the other thing that happens is sometimes you go back and go, this is the best sounding record I ever heard. And you go back and you listen and you go, oh my gosh, not even <laughs> right. close. Or you go back and you listen to something and you go, I got to get back into this again. You listen over and over and over and get deeper and deeper into it. But um, yeah. What, what do you think the... Um you've got you know the 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 stadium tour out there you've got all these packages of of the 80s guys out there playing the big shows but then it kind of jumps over the grunge era and then you've got bands like Limp Bizkit and Corn and things like that kind of kind of still playing those big shows but really those grunge bands that kind of hit in between there you know everybody kind of jumps over them and what do you think that is well i mean they had some good they didn't have a long life a long shelf life they were only around for a few years. Yeah. There are some of them that did incredibly well. And not just, well, yeah, I, I have to say incredibly well that they hit the mainstream, right? So they wanted to start off as alternative bands, but they weren't alternative. They hit the mainstream. That's what made them known. And that's, I don't know of any, any of those bands that weren't mainstream that I know their names. And maybe a couple that I've heard of, but, and I think that's it. They had, they were around for a couple of years, just enough mm. to disrupt the flow. Um, yeah. But we needed to have it shaken up because the reverbs were getting too big and the hair was getting too silly and the makeup was getting ridiculous. <laughs> and it was crazy uh, what we were turning into. Um, so we needed a, a check and, and, it's not that these bands were anything other than what we started off being. They were raw. Nirvana was just a raw rock band with great rock songs. Nothing more than that. Other than, you know, Kurt wore a sweater. Cashmere, <laughs> mind you. It wasn't any old sweater. Right. Um, David Lee Roth once said, the guy's dressed in $10,000 worth of clothing that look like he has a cup in his hand. Um, <laughs> the, so, um, true quote. Um, but they're just great. So it's a power trio. It, yeah. You know, what a great band. And then there's the bands like Soundgarden, and they're all rock guys. Pearl Jam, Mike DeBrady, yeah. great rock. So concerned about his tone and not caught up in the Grammys and all that stuff. They just, they're rock guys, they're, they're just like us. Uh, so that's it. That's why. Sure. Do you think that part of the reason that they get skipped over is again, I'm going to go back to the image thing. Obviously Nirvana had an image thing and Soundgarden had an image thing that they did with their videos, but the bulk of those bands, the candle boxes of the world and whatnot, they just looked like me and you in the nineties. And therefore people didn't associate them as larger than life. Like, like we did these bands. 100%. Nobody wants to go and see their, next door neighbor on stage it's you're an entertainer <laughs> the clothes get the every single entertainer before that all had something that made them they were bigger than life the music is one thing but i want to see something different because if it's not that why are we going to have um why why do we have lights why do we have a big pa why do we have pyro it's part of the show so you have to you have to put on that persona and go on stage. They were doing the thing that there is no persona. This is me. I'm just a musician. I'm going to go out and walk up on stage and do it. Okay, cool. Um, it, it's tough to see. Sometimes you see 
our guys. Hey, can you guys dye my beard uh, in post? On this <laughs> um, Looking like Chris. Yeah, I, I got some gray in my beard, man. Well, I'm, getting, I'm an old man now, Fred, too. <laughs> he looks good. You guys both look good with it. Um, in fact, I was just at the studio. That's why I didn't have time to come back and, and shave with this guy. Tyler Smith, do you know him? He's the producer and mixer of like I Prevail oh, nice. and all of okay. those new ba- Holy Tamoli, if you guys haven't heard his mixes, they're the oh, yeah. best mixes I've ever heard in my life. Nice. Yeah, we were actually so, literally just talking about like I Prevail as as you popped on, as how good mm-hmm. that stuff sounds. But yeah. It's unbelievable. And here's this guy that just if you can teach me how to do, you know, how to pace a scene and how to read a scene and what you can do to a scene i'll teach you how to get that that low end because that guy is genius it's nobody is mixing like him it's musical he does the top top lines as well which they the kids now call top lines we call them melody right <laughs> right so um but he does all that and, and um even if he, his own dance stuff that he does he has a electro thing with the two of them and he's the singer and actually she was the singer on that but so freaking good. Anyway, that's why that's why my beard is gray. Jet <laughs> <laughs> <Chet> black. <laughs> Too funny. Oh, so what what kind of put you down the producer path and the behind the scenes guy? Because I mean, I know you did you obviously filled in for Guns N' Roses and you filled yeah. in for Lynch Mob and you filled in, you know, you did arcade and you did Cinderella. Like what what why didn't you take that path of of just road dog touring drummer that, that just, you know, gig after gig, what, what made you want to kind of stay in the studio? Um, it's really tough. I, oh, I'll just tell you the truth. I don't want to play clubs. Right. I'd never wanted to play clubs. I never wanted to be a club act. I always wanted to play arenas or bigger. And right. as the band started playing more small theaters and big clubs, I was like, uh, this is not for me and then i got hooked up with the kings the la kings and started doing sonic branding for them luke robotize idea and i saw that there was something different there and then through a friend of mine gabe Sachs, who's a writer showrunner show creator he he told me uh we were on the advisory board together at the kings we'd always for three years just friends nothing more than that because i had no idea what to do. I didn't know what I was doing. And he said, one day, uh, you know, if we have this show and it goes, you'll be our guy. And I thought, Oh, that's nice. You know, a buddy's saying something, <laughs> but I immediately registered at UCLA and I started going to school for film and TV composing. Oh, wow. Okay. So wow. that's, that's what I started. And I did three years there. And then I did the Berkeley master program, um, for film and TV because it's a whole different art, but, I was a violinist since I'm five. So I've played in orchestras my whole life. I played trumpet. Look at that. Wow. <laughs> nice. Huh? That is a trumpet. So um, so I know what does what in the orchestra because I've grown up in them. And I didn't sure. listen to anything but classical music since until I was 12. I started playing drums. Um, so I thought there was another niche. I was always, I always thought, you know, we're going to get 15 minutes and that's going to be it. And that 15 minutes went on for 30 years. But the whole time I'm like, I, I live in fear. So 
I was like, hey, this is going to end. Right. <laughs> uh, so um, fortunately, it kind of didn't. And then I got, he came, Gabe came true with his word. He said, this show is a go. Let's do it. You're the guy. And nobody gets handed um, a network drama. They have right. to work all the way up to it. And luckily, I was ready for it because I'm still not ready for it. But I went to school for it. And right. I kind of that whole a bit of an education and then there's another guy Danny Lux who was he is the guy from he does Grace Anatomy and he's done everything from sure Boston Legal to My Name's Earl to, to everything in between he's the master he's probably the best in the world right now um and he just took me under his wing he's like hey do you want to see what we do it was like my cousin Vinny <laughs> You mean I can see the files? Hey. <laughs> you know? It was one of those moments. I'm like, of course you can. So he brought me over and started asking me the important questions. And I was like, I think I can stay in the studio. I, I don't think I'll go on the road. So a couple of times during that, I went out and we did those cruises. And they were right. cool. Um, I would like to do one more stadium tour with somebody um, one day. That would be great. But right now, being in the studio is great. So that's what really made me do it is is not so much a steady gig, but network TV or TV shows like that is the equivalent for a composer of playing arenas. Sure. And, you know, the big tentpole movies like Tyler Bates is doing, who's out right now with um, Jerry Cantrell, he does the big movies and that's like playing stadiums. And I'm happy playing arenas right. <laughs> from home. So, yeah, I have the studio here. This is the home studio. And I have the matching studio that has the drums and all the, the stuff. But it, they're identical um, in every bit of equipment other than a drum set. Sure. And that's where I met Tyler today. Okay. How do you, how do you gauge success in production versus what you grew up doing in a band because you know in a band you play your set you know you know if you killed it or you know if you sucked mm -hmm. you know when you do production for a show well it it may not even air for eight months you may not even see the the final product mm -hmm. until long after you finished it so how do you gauge it do you just gauge it on your own ear and how you feel about a a piece of work or do you have to actually physically see it before you go, yeah, I killed that. Or, Oh man, I wish I'd have done this different. I I've never said, yeah, I think I killed that. Um, it's interesting because there's two parts to it. The first part is, you know, in a band, you know, if you played great or if you had a crappy night, mm -hmm. but people are always coming up to you and saying, you rocked it. They didn't know. The <laughs> they were like, you had a great show. You were killer. And it's like, no, we were horrible. Oh, don't be so hard on yourself. You were amazing. This gig, you were like, I crushed it. And they were like, eh, actually, we'd like you to change this. <laughs> so, uh, and you're answering to, so, so in the studio, we have one producer. And we kind of check ourselves. Like I always used to say to Eric, Eric, I don't know what to play here. Like, what would be a cool fill? I didn't want to go drop, 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 drop. And Eric would not think like a drummer. So he'd try this and say, oh, what a great idea. Um, so maybe that's a producer. But you have a producer saying, 
play the kick drum like that. Let's try to simplify this and try to make that different. Toomey's worked with me before. Um, <laughs> so, but in TV, you could have a hundred of these guys telling you, and they're one guy's saying to do it this way, and one guy's saying to do it that way. So I think just knowing that now and and learning how to learning what they mean because nobody really speaks the language so they give you an idea what they want and then you have to kind of figure out really what they're what they want and weave that and and make that happen so and you're right you don't sometimes you don't see it on the night shift i would see it right after so i would get something on monday and we would i'd probably get something on tuesday or wednesday and we'd be airing on monday Okay. So it that was immediate. Um, but you don't have time to think about it and you just have to go and you have to go with your instinct and, and you have to go with what your notes are. You you it's really difficult because everybody sits down and it's very well planned. Every single scene, what we're trying to do, whose perspective we're scoring from. So if you guys are having a conversation that I might be playing from your point of view, like you're having an argument, I'd be playing from Chris's point of view and they would see it and then they'll come back and they'll say, Hey, can you do us a favor? Play it from Toomey's point of view. Um, and then you have to change that and you have to say, okay, let's see what he's saying and, and what we're trying to, I would say I don't write music. I write okay. emotion. Okay. Instruments. So that's a difference there. There's no chorus. There's no, there might be a theme, but there's no verse, there's no chorus, there's no intro type of thing like that. I don't even know what the hell the question was. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm going to build off the question that neither of us remember. Um, how important is it? Like, I'll just throw Law and Order as a uh, an example. Yeah. Law and Order has a very distinct feel to it, you know, for 20, however many years it's been. How how important is the established feel when you go into creating something for that? Ah, so that's a show that's already been out. So right. that's walking into something that's already there where you'd have to use their themes and their type of, I haven't experienced that yet. So I've always okay. been able to be on the ground floor, uh, okay. starting a new show um, and developing my own Sonic world. Like going into the night shift, I was like, I asked for the, the, I said, what, he said, show is all yours. And I said, what do I do? And he said, don't F it up. <laughs> and that scared the crap out of me. I was like, what does that even mean? So I just went with it and I got better as we went. Now with this show I'm doing now, um, the arc, it is, um, it's my world to kind of make. And I send it to, to my friend and the showrunner creator, Dean Devlin. And, uh, I send it to him, and and what do you think of this? Okay, I like that. This is to this, this is to that, and we adjust it. He's a great musician himself. So kind of adjust the world, and then he just lets me go with it. Same with Almost Paradise. It was takes place on an island. Uh, so you have to make that sonic. You have to make the landscape. Sure. Um, the night shift, You. this is creating from, this, from the beginning. It was a show that takes place in San Antonio, shot in Albuquerque, and nobody talked like this. So it's like, <laughs> okay, how are we going to know we're there? So it has to be through the music, so to give you the kind of feel that you're, you're there. So um, 
that's kind of it. Walking into another show. If there's another show, the only way I would walk into a show that's already there is if a showrunner friend of mine takes over a show and they were having an issue with that composer or that composer had scheduling conflicts and couldn't do it. And then they would bring me in and then they explain to you, we want to keep this because we really like it or we think we need a change. The Simpsons. After 27 years, they can Alf Clausen. They get right. rid of this guy. He's done it. He's done everything. The Simpsons. It was his show. They bring in another company to do it, and they said we need to freshen things up. But I don't. I think they did the exact same thing that was happening because it worked. Because everybody is. So the sound becomes a character to me. The sound. Sure. My score is another character. And right. I think that's what gives a show many seasons in its feel. And I think if you change that, I don't know if that's a good thing. Right. Well, I'll, I'll point to one where I know they changed. I don't know what they changed because I'm not super production savvy, but I certainly know knew it the minute I heard it. NYPD Blue. NYPD Blue had a very distinct sound for like eight seasons. And then they just totally changed directions in like season nine or 10 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a different show. It for me, it was, was a it TV junkie. It wasn't as good. No, it really wasn't as good because there was like a certain unique sound that they had all their own. That was kind of, it fit the imagery of the dark gritty New York street sound. And then they just kind of popped it up some. And it was like, ah, this is not, you know, as dumb as it sounds, the little three to five second interludes between scenes and whatnot, I was like, eh, saying is good. It it, it 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 felt different. That's their signature. That was that's yeah. but yeah. It's like the you know, the old Angus Young getting interviewed. This is your eleventh record and it sounds <laughs> an awful lot like your other ten, you go, actually, it's our 12th record, and it sounds exactly like the other. <laughs> um, because he knows his audience, right? And he delivers, the ACDC delivers what we want. You right. know, can you imagine ACDC, the ballads, and really <laughs> the double album set. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, hell, a- ACDC, they tried one time with just a slight variation on sound with Fly on the Wall, and people went crazy thinking that it was, that the band was ending. Thank goodness, because that's what we got. Hold on, what's my... Um, you never know when you're in production, yeah. You get every phone call. Um, when they released that record, Aerosmith had done, I think, done with Mirrors mm-hmm. that they weren't those bands' most successful records, right? And we came out sounding like both of those bands, but a young version of, and so thank goodness for Fly on the Wall and Flick of a Switch <laughs> because yeah, I like those records, but. It opened a little, just a little sliver of a window, and we just scurried right through like a bunch of little cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fred, man, you kind of brought it up there. You you talked about doing another stadium tour, another arena tour, and you didn't necessarily say Cinderella. Um, yeah. I, I guess two, a twofold on that. Could there be a Cinderella without Jeff? And uh, may, maybe talk a little bit about Jeff's passing. I don't know if I've really heard you talk much about it. No, I, didn't, I haven't. Um, we uh, we always said that it's the four of us. That's why you don't see Tom out there touring as Cinderella. 
right because you know it's really his band he can say what he he wants uh he can say it is cinderella but it's not it right. doesn't feel like it doesn't sound like it doesn't look like it and we always said it's the four of us um so could there be something without jeff i don't know i think it'd be weird um we always say never say never but i'm why right no you know, why go do it what for who the fans would like to see it but then they're all going to miss jeff right we're going to always look over at that side of the stage and we're going to miss jeff our keyboard player gary died on the same friggin' day right right so stage right gone so we're like what you know you look over and it's it's, it's just so so wacky um so i i don't i don't see it if something miraculous happens and you know slash was like hey i really like you guys and i want to do something <laughs> with you guys and it would be cool to do and let's do a tribute yeah type of thing sure but i don't think anybody has the time as well you know other than the whole the four musketeers Right. So, Jeff's son's out there playing. I know Jeff's son's out there in a, oh, he's great. In, he's like you know, a few bands, things like that. So, you know, that might yeah. be a fun thing to do. He's just a mini me. Yeah. That, you know, people bring that up all the time and he plays like him, you know, he looks like him and we've all watched him grow up. You know, he's sure. like our, all of our illegitimate step child. Um, and we love the guy, you know, he's, he's really, you know, salt of the earth as they say. Oh yeah. Yeah, I was telling Chris earlier, man, I was we were talking about just those old days of of, you know, all the Cinderella guys somehow had something to do with 12 volt negative earth. Like, you know, mm. Eric was giving me bass strings, you know, you were obviously producing and Jeff would come to practice and, you know, say, "Hey, take that riff right there and make a whole entire song out of it." and things like that, man. So, yeah. it was just kind of crazy how how even I mean, Tom wasn't around much, but he was around a little bit. So, I mean, the four of you guys were like such so pivotal in my younger my younger years. Mm, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, well, it was uh, we had a definite a blast with you. You were the first person to turn me on to corn. No, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so you were like, oh, I love this band. Oh my gosh, I love this band. Corn. I remember I showed I showed up like right after that with dreadlocks, and you're like, What did you do to your hair? Yeah, what have you done? <laughs> what have you done? What have um, you done? Yeah, do you remember? That's uh, hilarious. Yeah, and you always wanted to get that bass sound. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> Looking back now, yes, Fred, you were right. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I will now admit it. You were right back then. <laughs> oh, that's great. I actually did one track with Monkey. Okay. Nice. Really cool. Gosh, I love this, this shirt. I promise. <laughs> Well, no, man, we've no. got a we 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 bought a new car recently. It came with some Sirius XM, and man, they play Cinderella on the Hair Nation channel. Like every seven songs is Cinderella. It's insane. It's crazy how yeah. much you guys get play on that. And you know, you were you were even posting the other day about Cobra Kai. You know, dudes wearing a Cinderella shirt and that. I mean, just the, mm -hmm. the 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 pop culture that you guys still are is is insane. There's a whole scene in in uh, Peacemaker. Uh, which I play drums on, thankfully, and I'm going to do season two, I think. Nice. Um, cool. He had, there's a whole scene arguing about Cinderella and about <laughs> if you're not a Cinderella fan or you are a Cinderella fan. 
and uh, they, you know, they, they call out Tom and it was really good, you know? So it, I don't know. It's, it's coming around. People realize that we had no agenda. The only agenda was to go out and have fun. You know, I talk mm -hmm. about poison being on this Def Leppard tour, Def Leppard Motley tour. Motley Def Leppard, let's say that. Nikki will see this and kill me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fun things coming with the six as well. We're doing a cool little oh, nice. thing that will be announced very soon. Not not a band. Um, but uh, Poison on that tour. I've never seen Poison have a bad show. You've never seen, like every other band on the planet that I can think of has had a not so stellar show. I've never seen Brett go for a note and miss. I've never seen, it's like the band is, whatever they're doing inside of the band, you know, it's not Steely Dan, but whatever <laughs> it is, it's this thing that never changes. They are the most consistent band I've ever seen. You go out, they throw a party, you know it's gonna be a good time, whether they're opening or they're headlining. Right. It's, it's always the same band at the same level. It's remarkable to me. I've never seen anything like it. They've never had a bad, they might have bad nights, what they think, but I don't think they think they have bad nights. You know? <laughs> oh, tonight was wonderful. We were so great. Uh, you know, it's always the same. The same, and it's not the same show. I don't want to say that. It's, it's just they found this this lane, and they're in it, and they're so good in it. Well, and, and a big part of that for them is that none of the none of the members were like virtuoso type guys that could lose it. You know, where a lot of the other bands from the era, the singers can't hit the high notes anymore. Well, the guitar it. players can't play as fast. You know, Brett. Brett's yeah. kind of a one octave guy. CC is CC. Ricky Rocket was never was never John Bonham. You know, I, I mean, I think yeah. for for that yeah. reason, Poison yeah. Poison was able to sustain. Sustain. They've never ever ever missed a beat. They get together. They rehearse where my studio is. Okay. Freaking four days. <laughs> They're in there day one. Sounds like what is happening in there? Is something wrong with the gear? <laughs> By day three, they sound like a stadium act. Nice. It's on, but these guys are unbelievable. I don't know what they have, but what it, whatever it is, it's a hoodspah, it's a moxie, it's a panache. Let's say, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, Fred, I, I, I have to ask about arcade, which. I I think was criminally. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> nice. It's Johnny D. There he is. I I always oh, thought no arcade Johnny D. Mm. <laughs> what? Yeah. Don't you just love Doro. All we are. We are all. We are. We are all. All we need. Huh? It's not the most lyrically um astounding song ever. <laughs> German, so it is far superior than everything else because it is German. <laughs> Yeah, that is true. But no, Johnny, I've known Johnny my whole life. He was like, before we were, we were playing clubs and Johnny nice. was showing up. Um, nice. And we were buddies way back then. Yeah, he was in your twin brand, Brittany Fox. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Guy <laughs> at Cinderella. Um, but he would always, he's like, hey, dude, I'm going to, 
play your exact kit? And I was like, do it. And he would always do it. Just, yeah, just love him. Right yeah. on, man. John well, T. dude, dude, tell, tell me about arcade and why arcade. I, I have a bosom. <laughs> it's over pectoral muscles, man. <laughs> Gosh, the shirt's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I think he's trying to get out of the arcade talk. Is that, is that, is that it? I can go somewhere else. <laughs> what the arcade? The arcade. Now, talk. I the always. Talk. I talk to Steven all the time. I I loved it. I I saw it a bunch of times. I saw you play with um at the Empire Concert Club in Cleveland eons ago and the place doesn't even exist anymore but i i loved arcade i honestly thought the only reason it didn't hit was because you guys were from bigger bands and people people wouldn't stop comparing it to cinderella or rat and just wanted you know all they wanted to ask you about was well when is cinderella getting back together when is rat getting back together and it still do that yeah yeah it just didn't seem like you guys got a fair shot especially the first album that first album is one of the better records from that time period to come out. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It was a good record. Um, I think it's the timing of when we were doing it. Um, it was in the middle of that era when everybody else was coming out. I think if we had come out a little bit before then or a little bit after then, we would have been much more successful. We had the Bon Jovi tour. Right. We, we were doing a lot. And Bon Jovi, I remember John coming to me once, and we were playing in the uh, Sacramento, whatever that that arena is. Okay. We weren't sold out. Arco. Arco Arena. And he said, man, it's a club gig. I said, a club gig? And he goes, yeah. And I go, you should be so thankful that you're playing arenas. He goes, no, it's not good. We're not, you know, we're not, I, we're half sold. And he goes, that's not. So he's probably saying, we got to lose you guys. <laughs> Take an arcade, the anchor record. Um, but he was, it was that time that it was affecting everyone. Right. Cinderella at that time did, did uh, still climbing and basically broke up. Right. The band, you know, they tried to tour and it was just like, <sighs> crash and burn they, they couldn't do it nobody could do it uh and the other bands were starting to go like this and it was just timing i think it was a really cool record brian maloof mixed it um yeah i think it was really really a good one so thanks for saying that the second record is cool it's heavier steven wanted to explore the heavier side right pop guy i've always been a pop guy that's why i do listen to do a leap and I do listen to all those. I you know I listen to Miley Cyrus and I used to listen to Hannah Montana. Um, yeah, well you played the second, those, so. the second <laughs> record felt more punkish to me. Like you know all the songs are two and a half minutes long. You know get mm-hmm. off my back and hot racing and stuff like that. They're all real short songs and mm-hmm. you know it 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 did feel it didn't feel like the same band as the first one. The first one no had it's a it, big feel. So the first one, uh, Johnny Angel and I wrote a lot of that record, the first one. Okay. Uh, he was from Talis, and then he was in Michael Monroe. And you'll see some old pictures of us floating around. That When I was in Cinderella, we were always writing together. Okay. So we wrote 
most of that record together and then brought Steven in and um, had him update some of the melodies and, and do lyrics. Like Cry, Cry No More, Cry No More might have been finished before Steven got in. Okay. He changed the lyrics completely on. I don't know, it's one or the other. We have some songs and then some we wrote as a band, but the majority of that one was just with a pop sensibility. Um, and then we, on the second record, everybody started writing. And Stephen was really in his Judas Priest phase. You know, he right. loves Halford so much. We all do. But he really wanted to go heavier with that. And like the move, is, I love the move. That's, that's, that's a, just a cool hypnotic groove. Um, and then there's one about the, uh, that little kidnapping. Um, is it Room with a View or something? We had, you know, it was, we got to do other things. We had a great bass, what a great bass player. Mike Patechian uh, was, I think that's how you say it. Um, we had a really good band. So we tried to go outside of just doing the normal two, four stuff. And, and we all got to shine a little more. But it wasn't, and by the way, we only have two records. You, think you don't count. Uh, you don't count a three. <laughs> there's friggin' like eight twenty-seven. There are so <laughs> many, uh, so many records. Hold on, let me close this. Um, <laughs> we have so many, so many records that are. Like, what the hell is this? He's like, oh, it's like a new arcade record. No, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> remember. <laughs> <laughs> we did two records. So there's two official records. And then there are some other ones that, that you know, we record, record them, Canal Street, New York. Um, <laughs> right. So that's where all the fake goods are sold. Nice. <laughs> the, um, I do, I do want to get you out of here quickly or not quickly, but you know, soon we've kept you for a it's long been an time. hour and a half. What are you talking about? Well, we, we, we were talking for a good half hour before you jumped okay. on or longer than that. But, um, this being not fest, I do need to ask you about the uh, the Corey Taylor, John Five, Michael Anthony, uh, you know, doing the uh, the Van Halen tunes together. Man, how did yeah. that come together? John, I just love John to death. He's like a he's like a brother. I talk to him almost every day, and um, it's uh, he's always threatened to. You want to play? You want to do something together? You want to do something together? You want to play with? I was like. Yeah, okay. And it just has never come together. And sometimes he's asked me to do things and it just doesn't happen. And I'm like, oh, so disappointed. <laughs> but I was like, eh, whatever. It's not going to happen. We're just buddies. And then he said, okay, let's get Corey Taylor. And I want to do something with Michael Anthony. And we'll just do Van Halen songs. And I go, okay, well, that'd be cool if that happens. And he said, all right, we're not going to. He was on the road. I think he was either, he was on the road with his band. Yeah. So he said, all right, we want to do Take Your Whiskey Home. And I said, oh, one of my favorites. Okay. And that's all we were going to do, one song. So he said, okay, there's no rehearsal. He was wherever, and, and he said, let's do it. And I said, okay. I was just ex excited to play with Michael Anthony. Um, so... Then he added another song, Running with the Devil. I said, okay, that'd be kind of cool. They said, learn those two. I said, okay. 
so I just learned the two songs. And then I never, I never met Michael before. So I met him at, was he at Soundcheck? He wasn't even at Soundcheck. I met him 30 minutes before we went on stage. <laughs> I'd wow. never met Corey before. I met him at the same meeting with Michael and we were saying, hey, that you'll see in the, uh, Take Your Whiskey Home, before he'd say, if you take your whiskey home, we pause. And that was the big, you know, gag that we were going to do. Okay, you hold that, let the crowd sing it, and then we'll come back in. Okay, everybody got, and that's how we met. <laughs> and that's the only time we played. So it was yeah. like, one went down, the other went down, John called me down, and then we started with Take Your Whiskey Home, and we had never played together. Never any of those songs. I had never even met them. And we played it like we were in a band together for 10 friggin' years. Yeah, and then yeah. we finished the two and they were like, this is so much fun. Let's do another. Anybody know Ain't Talking About Love? And I was like, yeah, I played it when I was 12. <laughs> That's the last <laughs> played that friggin' song. I was like, let's go for it. And again, everything just fell in. It was just a magical night where everything kind of just worked perfectly. And... It was amazing. Corey Taylor is so amazing as a singer. He's such a fan of, of art of music. And then he can go from Slipknot and then he can go into Stone Sour and then everything in between. What a talented, talented, really super, super nice guy. So, and then Michael Anthony, it's just a legend. Oh, yeah. Right. Got to be in something with somebody from van halen of course we toured with dave yeah one, it was amazing it was an amazing night yeah yeah the one thing about john five too is is i've never been a big like just instrumental guitar shredder guy but mm -hmm. the way he plays will just i i can listen to him all day long so let me tell you something about john all right i've never been into that stuff either right <laughs> so kind of you know i i i knew paul uh gilbert paul gilbert back before he had done anything. I used to play with Vinnie Moore. He used to come to my house in upstate New York. And we used to play in the basement together and write little songs on my little cassette player. Way, 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 way before any of this stuff happened, any, before any of us got in, in any bands. All great guitar players. And John was the most kind of precise out of all of them, almost the clinician. Like it's all... And it's, a, it's just amazing to, to watch what he does. It's so smooth, but that's all he does is practice every day, all day long. That's He's always got a guitar in his hand. Eddie Van Halen was like that, too, Andy Johns told me. He said Eddie always had to go to the bathroom, takes a freaking guitar with him. <laughs> uh, he would always, always be playing. John, the difference between John, because some people go, oh, yeah, John, you know, he's too clinical. He's not. He does his thing but if he goes and and plays on anything else he sounds exactly like that person so the big thing with van halen is the right hand the swing nine out of ten guitar players can't do that swing right john right. does it john everything he plays sounds if he's doing some 40s you know type of chet atkins mm -hmm. sounds like chet atkins if he does something that sounds like eddie it sounds like eddie he has all the feel in the world and he, he plays with the inflection of whatever that player is. 
And that is the mind-blowing thing to me is you never know how deep that guy's talent is, but it's ridiculous. And all the Manson stuff that he, he did, it's like, holy cow. I, you know, I was a huge fan of those records. And it's all, it's all John, the riff meister. He's like the new version of what Tony Iommi, Tony Iommi wrote the greatest metal riffs of all time to me. And John is doing the great new rock riffs. I guess it's not new rock, but whatever the hell he's right. doing in, in Rob's band, you know, that, that new record, the new zombie record. I love it. Oh yeah. It's just so good. So anyway, that, that's, that's how that came together. It's, I think everything cool happens through friends. They, yeah. Hey, oh, you yeah. want to do this? You want to do that? You want to do this? Oh, <laughs> let me introduce you to this person. And all of a sudden you're all doing something together and it's fun. Same in television, same in film. You, I'm not going to get it because of, oh, somebody looked at my IMDb and said, ooh, this guy's done nothing. They're going to go, hey, this is a friend of so-and-so. Give him a shot. And I think that's, and that's how this whole thing with John 5 came together. Let's just play. Do you remember him as a kid running around L.A.? Like he was, you know, there's stories of him at the cat house and everything else back when he was a little kid. No, I don't. But I do remember he keeps telling me about because he was in that band Red Square Black. Okay. And I was really good friends with Randy Castillo. And okay. I remember Randy being at the NAM show with headphones playing me this music and saying, This is our guitar player. And I remember meeting John, but I don't remember. In my mind, he had a red leather jacket on, but probably not. Um, but apparently, I met him in 1987 or 8 or whatever. Wow. But I don't remember John running around back then. Um, I'm sure I met him 20 times, but <laughs> too aloof to realize that or to admit it. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, yeah, but wow, what a talent the guy is. Oh, yeah, sure. Chris, you got a couple more? Well, I can ask questions all day, man. Because right. um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I was such a Cinderella fan back in that era. I, the tour, I, I guess it would have been Long Cold Winter, I think it was, when, when you toured with Bullet Boys and Winger. Mm -hmm. And you guys, of, of all the tours that I saw of you guys, that to me was like the best and the biggest because it, it really – and for lack of a better term, it had that Aerosmith feel to it. Had mm -hmm. the big giant stage, had the piano that just kind of moved into place. It was such a big tour at that point, but it was still musically excellent, mm -hmm. which was which was rare in that day. And, and you know, we were talking about Motley Crue, but Motley Crue always upped the ante to kind oh, of yeah. mask to mask some of their deficiencies as players, I always oh. thought. Where, where I'm, and I'm not asking to comment on that. What I'm, what I'm saying is you guys up the ante across the board, which was, I, I'm curious for you guys, was that, that you guys were just trying to be a bigger band with bigger sound and bigger stage and bigger everything or, or was you, it just you, always try to, you always try to do the biggest show that you can, you know, and you all was hard looking at bands like Motley who are doing it bigger than anybody. Sure. So you try to, in fact, we used to share the same sound man, Lori Quigley. Okay. We would have to wait till they finished so we could go out and tour. So, and one of my favorite 
bands as as I said. So I would try to take as much as I could from that book because they were so darn good at it. Um, so we went with a total white stage and the white mm -hmm. amps and the whole long cold and we made it snow on stage and we wanted right. to come down um musically so bullet boys so we were on a we went to an in-store and we were in london we went to an in-store and they let us raid the friggin prize vault basically it's like that was our whole thing oh, if we're not going to get paid for this we take any record we want now like right okay if you want to yeah let go ahead <laughs> and we would take like as many, and I got this one because it was a cool. Look at these freaking guys on the back. I saw the picture of of the Bullet Boys, and on the front the apple with the bullet going through. I go, this is cool. Ted Templeman, what is this? Brought it right. back, put it on the bus. We played it. And we all lost our minds. We were like, who the frig is this? And our manager, Larry, was with us. Larry, we want this band out with us. Who are they? What do they mean ticket wise? Who cares? Listen to these guys. All right, we want. He wanted Winger. Well, Winger's going to be here. We're like, Winger? Winger? <laughs> no, we, you know, we want the Bullet Boys. Because Bullet Boys, we'll, we'll get Bullet Boys, and then you, you put Winger there. Just trust me. We're like, okay. He's like, who else can you put in that spot? We were like, I don't know. Okay, so we get to the arena the first day, and we walk in, and we go, what the frig is this? And it was Winger on stage. And they had Oris Henry, who's one of the greats, one of the top three greats in front of house mixing. Sure. So they sounded unbelievable. And as a band, they were unbelievable. And the songs were insane. And the players, they're all freaking they're yeah. Juilliard grads, right? And we were like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. These guys are so good. And we had a meeting. Guys, you have to play your frigging nuts off because we're going to have to follow that. Fred, you got Rod Morgenstein. I was like, hey, get me more pyro. I <laughs> something to make it where, ooh, ah, give me one of those. And, you know, the, the, everybody, everybody up there was a superstar at their instrument. Right. And sonically, they were crushing so luckily we had a great sound man. That was our thing. We always had to have the best sound man and the best light, light guy, uh, which we did. These guys had the other great sound man. And one thing we learned from Bon Jovi is give the opening acts everything. Anything that they want, you give it to them. You got to keep a couple of tricks for yourself. But Sound-wise, give them full sound. Lights, pretty yeah. much give them full lights, maybe a few spotlights short. Other than that, it's the same show. And we had to follow them. So that's why that tour was so good. And then Bullet Boys, they rose to the occasion too. They saw all of that and they were like, we have to be, we have to be just as good as these two bands. Cinderella has always taken it very, if we had the people go, why can't you just go do a one-off? We would never do that. We would play at least a month of solid, solid, serious rehearsal before we could do. We can't do the poison thing. Four or five days, they just nail it. You know, they do their right. thing. We always took a month and really meticulously went in. And but we have a lot more going on. We have the pianos and we have the this and we have the slides and we have the 50 different instruments and Tom's playing sax and you got Eric with the pedals and playing the, you know, and 
so much going on. Um, so we always took that much time to kind of be a really great band live. And I wow. think we achieved that, but that was really the most memorable tour of all time to yeah. me. It, it was really great. I saw it twice and both times it, it was fantastic. And I had seen you, Thanks. I think I had seen you previously. Roth was previous to that, right? With Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had seen, I had seen the Roth tour and that was a talk about an, another big tour, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, for you guys, now that one didn't seem like they gave you full stage at all. It seemed no, like you guys no. had a little tiny bit of room and then Roth had, had yeah. everything. But <laughs> we could, as we crossed him in the charts, we would lose things. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it got to the point where we had to jump from that tour. I love Dave. And it was amazing watching these guys every night, you know, Billy Sheehan, which was the beginning of my whole career came from Billy Sheehan. Right. Um, so watching those guys were great, but he was the opposite. He would turn on the house lights on you if you did something he didn't like. Whereas Bon Jovi was like, you guys have everything you need? Yeah. You need anything? John would come and say that. Do you need anything okay. else? No. Then he would, you know, get his guy on the radio. Do they have all the lights? Yeah, they don't have this bank of whatever. Give them the bank or whatever. Anything else you guys need? He was that guy. So we learned to treat our opening acts like that, which is a better show for everybody. Sure. Well, and that, that was always the thing with, with Cinderella. I mean, like I said, I've seen Cinderella 10, 12, 14 times. I mean, a lot of times. I mean, Thanks. both both as <laughs> headliners and as, as openers and I always thought, especially as you guys got later in, in your guys' career, mm -hmm. you know, with the reunion shows and whatnot, it was easy to tell which bands put out the hardest show. You guys, every show, and you can just, I challenge anybody that's watching this to go to Google and just look up Cinderella 2005, eight, whatever, you know, whatever year, every picture is you guys soaked to the bone. Because you guys <laughs> left it, literally, oh, you guys left it on yeah. the stage every single night. Thanks. Where that, a lot of the it? other, well, but a lot of the yeah. other bands that I would see at the, at the same shows, you know, these package shows, didn't. They'd come out, they'd play their hour, they'd leave. You guys would play literally until you couldn't swing a stick anymore and Tom couldn't sing anymore. <laughs> yeah, there were a couple of nights of that, yeah. You know, yeah. It, it just seemed yeah. like you guys were always out to murder every crowd that you were playing we every time, man. We tried. Thank you. It was, it was cool, man. It was a thank cool time. You. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It was fun. Well, Fred, man, thank you so much for taking some time guys, with me, me and Chris tonight, man. And, uh, and, and I say for, it all uh, the time on the show. I say it over and over on the show, man, how much you've meant to me as, 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 as a young guy and growing up and just all the, uh, the wisdom you gave me, uh, that I that I still hold today, man. So I, I appreciate Thanks. you, and I always will, man. Thank you. Right back at you. Thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, you mean a lot to me. Thank you. Man, a cheap sleazy in Hollywood bungalow. She couldn't decide in which way the wind blow. She got a fastback super track moving machine. Oh, the best damn mother that you've ever seen.
All right, huge thank you to Fred Corey for taking, I guess, an hour with us, man. That was that was might be one of my favorite interviews we've ever done on this show. Any, any interview that I've done on the show, period, man. Fred's Fred's a good dude, and uh, like I told him there at the end, man, he he means a lot to me. And and in in the infancy of my my musical years, you know, Fred Corey came along, and obviously that wisdom that he was giving then, he was he was telling me way back in the day. So uh, sure. so uh, definitely a, a good dude to kind of be around back you know, early days of, of the, of the bands. Absolutely. Well, I'm just a fan. I loved Cinderella back <laughs> in the day. Yeah. I'm happy to talk to Fred anytime. And like, like I said, midway through the interview, I could ask him another hour's worth of questions. Oh, no, I, probably one of the few times I've ever gone an hour with somebody and I still have things written down on the paper just sure. in case. So, uh, <laughs> so once again, huge thank you to Fred Corey and uh, make sure to, to follow everything you do. Sounds like he's doing some stuff with Nikki six and wow. All kinds of fun stuff, man. Cool. 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 All right, let's uh, let's do some quick uh, quick recommendations, and then we'll get out of here. All right, um, I've got a TV and a and a music. Music is um, I just interviewed these guys today. Uh, the band is Crisian. They have a new release coming out called Mortem Solis, and oh my god, <laughs> that is a sledgehammer to the nuts. It is a heavy, heavy, heavy death metal release. So. New Crisian, I believe it's out the end of July, but there's a single out there right now for uh, Serpent Messiah, which is awesome. So check that out. And as far as um, TV goes, there's a documentary on Netflix called Gladbeck. And it's about it's about a, um, a hostage situation in Germany somewhere. Okay. And you'll watch it and you'll be like, this is the weirdest shit I've ever seen. <laughs> because... I guess this thing happened in the eighties or something, but it's before it's before there were laws in place on how to handle hostages. Oh, nice. And like the media is just walking up on the car and the guys are coming out with their guns and doing <laughs> interviews with the media and stuff. There's no real police presence. Wow. And it, it's the weirdest thing. It's almost like a casual hijacking of a bus. It's, it's bizarre, but, but at the same time, there are people that get killed and everything else because the hijackers get tired of waiting for the police. So they shoot hostages and stuff, but then you just see these, these, um, paparazzi guys just walking up and saying, Hey, can we do an interview with you? Oh, sure. Come on in. You know, it's, <laughs> it's the weirdest, weirdest, weirdest documentary I've ever seen. But again, it's called Gladbeck. It's on um, uh, Netflix. So nice. check that out for something very odd. It's definitely cool to watch. Nice. The only thing I really have this week is is music, man. I've got we've got the kids here, uh, summertime. So okay. I mean, all all I all I see on TV right now is like YouTube videos of kids playing video games. <laughs> so, <Right? laughs> so there's the so there's a lot of that going on. So, um, but a couple of new things came out. Uh, For the Fallen Dreams came out with a song called What If. And it's crazy because the the vocalist of uh, For the Fallen Dreams is Chad Rulig, um, who's been on the podcast a couple of times for his le uh, legend band that he does. Mm -hmm. um, and he, when I interviewed him the first time, he said, hey, big fan of Primer 55, blah, blah, blah. Grew up listening to it type stuff. And if you see him, you're like, wow, because he's like big beard, tattoos and everything else. But he's a big fan of Jason and Primer 55. So when there were rumblings of Primer 55 doing a show or two right. or three, I said, you know, we needed a singer. So I was like, Hey Chad, do you want to, would you do this? And he said, he said, absolutely. But it was funny because I never knew if he would be able to do like the rappy stuff that Jason did. Sure. Well, in the verses of this song, 
He's got some rappiness to him, and it's it's eerily similar to Jason. So, A, the primer shows would have been awesome, but this new track from For the Fallen Dreams uh, is fantastic. And definitely, uh, you know, go check it out. I think the album will be out soon. Definitely have Chad on the show again. Cool, cool. And then uh, there's kind of a nope category on this one. I, I, the new Machine Head song, Unhallowed. Yeah. Not feeling it, man. Not feeling it. You didn't like that? I'm not feeling that one, man. The other Uh, one was great. This one, not so much, man. I like this new one when Metallica called it the day that never comes. <laughs> Same exact song. So bizarre, yeah, man. So it's not good. I'm with you. It's not good. It's slow. It's dull. The pickup at the end stinks. Yeah. It's, it's catharsis worthy. I've listened to it a couple of times and both times I forget I'm listening to machine hit. Yeah. Like I said, it's catharsis worthy. <laughs> it's not a real good track. Not a good track. So that's it for uh, for talk to me this week. Once again, thank you to Fred Corey for coming on, hanging out with us, and uh, man, man, what a what a great chat that was. That was a lot of fun, yeah. and uh, just support him. Anything you can do, man. If you're if uh, you know, see he's doing a TV show. Watch the TV show. You know, that's right. S- support your friends. That's right. And <laughs> so for the uh, Talk to Me podcast, I'm Joshua Toomey. I am Chris Aiken, and we will talk to you soon. See ya. The Talk To Me Podcast, presented by NotFest.com. Follow the show at Talk To Me Talk. Be sure to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app to get the latest from the Talk To Me Podcast.